This is Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's final reforms. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel, all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chamber of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, the singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chamber. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain and offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each, had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is, the, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zakur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days, I saw in, Ju in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they 
could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath on the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to, to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Heronite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, which in, which in his work. And I provided for the wood offering, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Alex. Pray with me, everybody. <clears throat> God, um, you have given us this time as a holy time. Um, pray that you would teach us right now each what we need to hear, that the Spirit would be working in us as to how... Um, how we are perhaps not so different than the people of Israel so long ago. God, I pray that, that we would take this seriously, that this would be a solemn time, um, so that in our conviction of ourselves and our realization of you, that we could be, um, that we could have so much more clarity on who it is we're becoming, who, on it, who it is Jesus asks us to be when he says to follow him. God, I pray that I would be able to teach this well, um, that your words would be spoken through me. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you guys, we are, we're finishing up Nehemiah. Um, I know it's been, a, it's been a bit coming. I have probably too often sort of looked to this ending point and reminded us that we're almost there. Um, but indeed, this is the last week. And last, the, the previous week, last week, I said it was the climax, right? And it, it, for, for most people, myself included, like the climax is the end, right? The climax is the end of the story. So what's after the climax? Isn't the climax the end? But, you know, there's a point in every movie. I don't know, you know, when you watch, even any book, but especially in every movie, there's this formula that, that says if you're at the climax, right? The climax is like the the final battle with the villain. But after that, there's always like a good 10 minutes of the movie. Some movies longer, right? Some movies, there's a whole other act. But usually there's another few minutes where they're wrapping up all the loose ends, right? Uh, there's, there's a term for this, a French term called denouement, which means untying. It literally means untying, unfolding, taking the creases out of the map, right? And pushing them all down so that everything is perfect and visible, the resolution of the story. So, you know, we call it tying up, whether it's tying up or untying. The idea is that there is this point after the climax of the story where actually you can see the whole map at once and everything that's happening in the story at that point is trying to 
illuminate the big picture themes for you. That, that, that point of the movie is the point where they say, oh, well, why did all of that happen? Why did I have to go through all of that? What is it that all of that meant? And that's, that's where we're at at this point in Nehemiah. We have this final chapter that sums up the message of this entire sort of, at this point, epic story um, with one big picture headline. And so I want to I want to I want to give us a parallel text to look at as we're diving into what is this headline what is this meaning I want to give us a parallel New Testament text that I'm gonna I'm gonna go between and it's just a very short text um, but if you go to Philippians 2 12 through 18 it's a fairly famous part of the book but it begins like this therefore my beloved Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he says therefore my beloved church as you have always obeyed so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's just the first verse. Not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now think about what's happening here in, in this Old Testament book, the last historical recorded moment before the New Testament. What's happening with, with Nehemiah? He has left. He's gone away from his people. They've gone through these incredible reforms, these incredible renewals. And Nehemiah, it says, goes back in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon. Remember, he was cupbearer to the king. This guy's, this guy's a, a sort of a big shot name in Persia. And he says he, his, his, his leave of absence, the time has run up. And Nehemiah is a man of his word, got things done on the right timeline, goes back and is going to check in with the king. And so he goes back and he spends, we don't know exactly, right? It says, and after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. So he's away for a while. Dad's gone. And what happens, right? What happens when he takes a vacation? When your leader takes a vacation, what happens? When your mentor takes a vacation, right? When whoever it is that you value as the person that you're actually doing the things you do for, then when they leave, the true you comes out to play, right? The, the, the you that you've always wanted to be. I mean, how many of us probably can imagine a time in whether it's high school or college or some time at which the parents were away and you either had the party at, the, at their house, right? Or you had something, you did something because they were away and they couldn't, they couldn't see it. No, there's not really any accountability, that, but that demonstrates who you really are, what you really want. Or perhaps we could look at this, we could say, it's, it's helpful to look at this passage and say, what is happening with these people while they're going away? There's a, there's a common term we use with this, backsliding, right? This is a sort of a Christian term that you hear a lot in Christian circles, maybe in youth group. Oh, you backslid. So there's this idea that right now what's happening is there's backsliding. That the people in Israel have clearly learned how to honor the Sabbath, right? There was a whole part of our oath series or mini series. There was this whole section about Sabbath and how they should behave. And here it's just an, a clear indication that they, they are not obeying the Sabbath. They're letting people in the gates on the Sabbath. They're doing commerce, right? They have not ended intermarriages with, with foreigners who worship other gods. Clearly. They're married and the kids don't even know the language of Judah. Um, 
the Levites, who are supposed, who we've, the whole thing, the, the whole book of Ezra is about building the temple, and the whole book of Nehemiah is building a wall around the temple. And what have they done? They've let foreigners Airbnb the temple. They're just letting people do, they're, they're pushovers. And they're letting sin just in into the guest room of their life because somewhere deep down through all this renewal, there's a part of their life, their soul, where sin still has a home. So I want to walk through three, th three things with us tonight. The first one is I just want to show, first of all, it is possible for all of this to happen even if you are an exceptional slayer of sin. Harking back to that quote I used by Spurgeon, I think it was last week, right, where he says, slay your sins or they will slay you. Verse, verse 1 through 3 of chapter 13 shows us these, these people are exceptional slayers of sin. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard this law, they separated from Israel all of those of foreign descent. They are slain sin. Man, they are on top of it. They say, yeah, Nehemiah, you call the next shot. We're on fire to do this. We're excited. Whatever you say, we will go and do. These people are well-trained. They seem well-disciplined. They seem like they have the right spiritual diet. Right? They're, they're people of the word. They just, they've been basking in the law being read to them and abiding by it. They're people that have a regiment. They have the right trainer. They're doing all of the right things that you would do if you were taking on one of these life-changing health craze diets, right? And you say, I need it. I need the trainer. I need, I need the diet. I need the plan. I'm going to cut everything. I'm getting rid of everything in my cupboards. They've done all of that, they think. But the question is, had they been slain? I mean, had they, what, what was wrong? They'd been slain sin and fear and trembling, right? They, they know the power that it has over them. They're throwing off sin that would entangle them. We remember that when they heard the, the, the law read to them, they were cut to the heart and they said, not only us, but our fathers have done that. In fact, the reason we're here is because all of this Let's make a change. And we would think that in chapter 12, when we have this glorious singing on top of the walls, when we have this incredible dedication, where the people are lifting up their voices and they're standing on the thing they built and they're just praising after God and it's heard far away from the city, we would think, wouldn't that be the time at which God would roll the credits on this book? Wouldn't that be the time where we just go out with a happy ending? We go to bed feeling good. We just watched that tonight. We get excited. We're on fire to go renew our lives in revival for God. Wouldn't that be that the way that the word of God should end this book? But it's not. We have this chapter that almost seems like a, a, it seems like a downer, let's be honest. It seems like a total downer. But on the same level, there's something about this chapter being in this book that makes it so much more real, so much more human, so much more relatable, so much more poignant, just deeper than deep. 
that this would all be here? And how would the very last sentence of the book end? But Nehemiah shouting out, remember me, O God, for good. Because when he goes away, it all falls apart. And what Nehemiah realizes, what we have to realize in part of this, in all of this slain of sin, in all of this revival, in everything that we do, one thing is always true. We can only control our own character. We can control our own intentions. We can control how we use our time and our hearts. We can have good goals, but we can't control others and their outcomes. We can't control outcomes, you guys. We can only control our character. And man, that is tough to reckon with. Because what we'll find is that so often when we seek to slay sin, we're serving ourselves because we're seeking to control our outcomes. And when our outcomes don't work out, when things don't go the way we want them, even though we did all of the right things, then we start to, to lose it. And in fact, you even see Nehemiah, his anger is on full display here. Nehemiah is saying, I don't know what else I could do. Like, give me a break, guys. What else could I do? I step away for however long. You guys knew I needed to get out there. There is serious frustration with this man. And in the end, he realizes, I can only control my own character. So then, let's put ourselves in the place of the people in Israel and say, if that's the case, if, if, if they were exceptional slayers of sin, if Nehemiah was an exceptional slayer of sin, how is it that they were keeping this, this guest room for sin? Because we can clearly see that they were. They're literally making a guest room for Tobiah. It's like a storage shed in the temple for his extra junk. Like, it's ridiculous. What is getting them to, to think that way? So I think first thing we have to realize is that sin operates so well. Sin's, sin's moment is when there's a power vacuum. Okay, think here's here's a good example of a power vacuum. So when when the for for many years, the Soviet Union moved into Afghanistan and they ruled Afghanistan. Numerous parts of the Cold War was sort of around everything going on in Afghanistan, right? And then in '96, the Soviets pull out of Afghanistan. Everything's done. USSR is falling apart. Uh, Russia is no longer in Afghanistan. And what happens? Well, we all know who moves in, right? The Taliban fills the vacuum of power that was left by this, the rulership of the Soviet Union and Russia. And they fill it and they take over. There was a power vacuum and they came in, they saw the moment, they seized the moment, and they just seeped all throughout everything. I think that's a helpful metaphor when we think about sin in our lives. There are so often times in our lives where we have good leadership, everything's done, we've slayed sin, we've gone after it, things are working out, and then the structures of our life change in some fundamental way. The people we're living with, maybe, maybe you can relate to this as somebody who grew up in faith, when you got out of that youth group and you were out on your own, or when you got out of that church and those friend groups into a new friend group, when you went off to college, after that, when you start making new friends, when you have kids, when you start, when, when you fall into a new church, all of these things change the dynamic of your life. New workplaces, new obligations, 
new, new temptations, new people that want you to be a certain way, and you're sort of chameleoning your way through life. Some of us especially can relate to that. You're sort of adapting and becoming. And there are times where if you're not the leader, if you're not in control of your own character and saying, I believe that I have on a certain level to discipline, if I have to take this on, if you're not conscious of that, then there's this huge power vacuum because what was happening is actually somebody else was your holiness. When somebody else was around, you were good and holy. But when the parents left town, the true you came out. And so what we see is this exact thing had happened in chapter 13. It says, Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber. They had pre previously put the grain offerings, etc., etc., right? So who is this guy, Eliashib? Well, there was an earlier Eliashib in the story. Um, commentators don't believe that this was the earlier Eliashib because he was the high priest. Unlikely that the high priest would have allowed this to happen. But Charles Finch, who writes a commentary on this, says, if we keep in mind that the grandson of Eliashib the high priest had married the daughter of Sanballat, which we find out in verse 28. If we keep in mind that the, the grandson of Eliashib had married the daughter of Sambla, it's conceivable that we're talking about Eliashib, son of Eliashib here, right? That, that the, in, the word, in the word, it's named Eliashib the priest, but it doesn't say the high priest. You'd be pretty sure they would say the high priest here. So clearly this is somebody like the son of Eliashib, right? And he says, the reason that makes sense is because this guy, was permissive. He let his own son marry a foreigner when that was clearly forbidden. So what we have on our hands is a father who is a permissive dad. Maybe he's busy with his job, doesn't care what his son's up to. But clearly this is a guy who has a permissive temperament. And so what we can see through this is this permissiveness is what allows sin to just come on in. Because if there's one thing you can be sure about with the enemy, he will bully you. He will always be more seductive. He will always have better answers than your answers. He will always be more persuasive, cooler, right? In all ways, he will use every tool at his disposal. And so this commentary says, in Nehemiah's absence, certain prominent Jewish leaders were bringing their pure religion into danger. That's, that's obvious, right? And so I think for us, we should ask ourselves in this moment, we should say, in, in my fight of sin, is there places where I'm not, I'm fighting short games well, that's what I'm thinking about right now in my life. I'm fighting short games well, but it seems like I expend all of my energy on conquering a certain temptation, a certain sin pattern, anger, jealousy, um, workaholism, uh, self-actualization. I'm fighting all these things and I just get through, I know it's a problem and I just get to the point where I feel like ah, today I got it and I'm utterly exhausted. And what happens? No sooner am I utterly exhausted than there's a power vacuum because I've given up. I've said I'm done for today, I'm tapping out. Or I'm done for this week, I'm tapping, it's just too hard. And what happens is as soon as we do that, we start to check out in the various ways that we do, this power vacuum happens and who runs in? Because we've gotten permissive. Because we've said, fine, you keep pestering me, you can just have it. 
I'm tired of fighting. Any, any parent can relate to this with your children, right? There's just a moment where you just go, fine. You know it's not the right move. You know it's not teaching them the right thing. You just let them do it because you're tired. And this, this, in Nehemiah, we see God is speaking directly out against us. In, in Philippians, we see that Paul is speaking out directly against this. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, right? He says, you've done a good job. Now, not only in my absence, but much, not my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So, therefore, we know that we ought to be ruthless. We know that we need to be ruthless against sin. Because the worst thing that could happen is for us to be lukewarm, for us to be ambivalent, for us to believe that sin isn't even maybe a thing. That this is all just kind of philosophy. There's no such thing as good and evil. That would be Satan's greatest tactic. Right? That these are just personality traits and types and you do you, right? No, there is good and there is evil. And Nehemiah is pointing right to it in this closing part of his memoir. Barclay, who I've talked about before, is just a commentator who writes well on these kinds of things. He says, for most of us, the threat of life is not so much that we should plunge into disaster, but that we should drift into sin. Do you notice that? Most of us are scared, most scared that we would be plunged into disaster. Those are the things we're worried about fretting about. We are not worried and fretted about drifting into sin. He says, there are few people who deliberately in a, in a moment turn their backs on God. There are many who day by day drift farther and farther away from him. There are not many who in one moment of time commit some disastrous sin. There are many who almost imperceptibly involve themselves in some situation and suddenly awake to find that they have ruined life for themselves and broken somebody else's heart. That speaks to me. We must continually be on the alert against the peril of the drifting life. The word will never drift from us. So there's Barclay just saying it exactly. I resonate with that completely. Exactly how it feels. But he says this. This is truth that transcends time. This is truth that gives you clarity. Go to this. This will not let you down. Because it's the word of God. So before we move on from this, we've got some more work to do. I want us to really sit here and think for a minute. Two, two pieces of our drifting. Two pieces of our, 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 bed, our extra bed, or for some of us, our roll-out couch, right? That's all we've got. No guest room in this house. A roll-out Ikea couch that I leave with, with blankets ready for sin to come in and just be in my house. How are some practices that we do this? One is this. Um, the comparison game, keeping up. This is one I'm guilty of. This is one that's really hard, right? It is fueled by things like social media, fueled by phone calls in which you can immediately feel you're jealous of your friend's update on their life. Jealousy and envy. How do you fight these things? Well, you do. You do. I'm not saying you shouldn't fight them the way that the people of Israel fight them and that Nehemiah had fought them. That's an important thing. The first thing we must be doing is slaying their sin. We have to be looking at these practices. We need to say, maybe the slaying I'm doing wasn't really slaying. I was just kind of fencing. Maybe I need to really get out the weapon of annihilation against this sin. 
for me, for me, it was this week. I just said, the world's so chaotic. The world's so crazy. Social media has got to go. The apps are off my home screen. They're off my phone. They're removed. I just can't. I just can't anymore. They've got to go. Practical things to fight that. To fight that comparison. To fight the keeping up. To fight always being on the cutting edge. Pride. Another one. Winning. Getting ahead. Becoming the best you. Um, that, that, that directly. The Israelites had this problem. They were opening the gates back up on Sabbath to be part of the people around them. Just falling into the same old sins that Israel had fallen in before, before their exile. I'm saying, we want to be a great nation like everybody else. We want to be just as able. We want to have the house that everyone else has. They wanted more advantage, and so they overworked. And maybe they didn't have the accountability. Maybe everybody really realized, man, that would really help us out. Nehemiah is away. Some of those sort of sub-leaders succumb to it. Think of Aaron while Moses is away. Getting the... No sooner is Moses gone up Mount Sinai than Aaron. Aaron, it's not that Aaron's a terrible person. Aaron was, was a really smart guy. He was known as brothers. He was instrumental in so many good things. But he was permissive. He could be bullied. And all it takes is one strong force, one persuasive recommendation, one threat. And pretty soon, there he is. And there they are, overworking. One threat to your livelihood, and there you are at work on Saturday when you didn't want to be, when you know your family doesn't want to, right? Because you're not strong against it. You're not holding yourself against it. You're not saying, I see that this will be of a disadvantage to me now, but I know, I know it won't be of a disadvantage to me in the long term. I know why, because I see it here. Another one, lack of leadership. Um, what is this root of permissiveness? It's, it's a lack of leadership. So we see here in, in, the, in this particular case, men who's, who had married wives of foreigners. And it's not just the marrying. That in and of itself was forbidden in this particular instance because it showed their fealty was to other gods. But it was the permissiveness. They would have said that they had been people of Israel and that maybe wives had been married into the fold, which did happen. Or we think of people like Rahab who came into the fold of Israel. So it's not like Israel is this isolated entity. People, Ruth, Ruth the Moabite, through Boaz, comes into the people. That's great leadership. Look at the kind of leader Boaz was. But this is poor leadership. This is marrying out with a permissiveness of saying, I'm busy, you raise the kids, sure, I don't care if they even speak my language, right? Permissive, all sorts of different forces of seduction, maybe, of, of threats, of all the same things that sin does, wearing that down, and there was a lack of leadership in that person. They were looking to somebody else to toe the line, and when push came to shove for them to put their foot down, they weren't willing to do it. And who ran the home? Somebody outside from another nation who worshipped a foreign god. Last one, not in the text, but so key to us in this time. Just, I have to mention it because it's a key part of our culture and the way we fight sin. Is we get through that battle and we hack through that jungle and we are exhausted and we know we did the right things that day and it was hard and we just need to open the cupboard to get some candy. It's escapism, right? It's, it's binge watching when we know we shouldn't be. It's partaking of things, and maybe it's cheering us up, but it's things that which are, are, are ruining, are eroding our, our sensibilities, perhaps their moral sensibilities, perhaps their, 
Perhaps they're simply time sensibilities. That time needs to be used for other things. And we're too busy escaping. We're neglecting responsibilities. And it happens across all different directions. And I'm, I was a media person. I'm not against taking in stories that are important and powerful. But you know when you're watching something that has a deep impact on your soul and it's teaching and building you. Versus when you're watching violence for violence. Evil for sadism. The anti-hero to see that life is meaningless because that's what they're trying to tell you. When you disagree with that. When you're seeing uh, the ultimate fulfillment of life being in marriage through a romantic comedy or, or a drama. And you're getting these mixed messages and you're too tired to fight it. Let's just be honest. You're too tired to fight at that moment. Don't open the door to that when you're too tired. That's what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, guys, just close the gates on the Sabbath because you can't deal with it. And it's these attitudes that he's hitting on. He's hitting, he's hitting on envy and jealousy. He's hitting on pride, getting ahead. He's hitting on lust, being fulfilled by beauty and power. He's hitting on sloth, selfishness, self-focus. And he's hitting on just this general sense of tunnel vision. That when the going gets hard, you really don't see anybody else for yourself. And so the person you go to worship is you. And he says, we all know. We, we all just repented to the Almighty God. What are we doing? So you might say, okay, John, I, I, I get it. Those are very practical. I need to do some of those. I have some of those attitudes. I get it. But you might also say, I do all of those things. And um, I think I'm fine. I'll be honest. I, I do a pretty good job. I'm, pre I'm a pretty moral person. I think I'm fine. But Paul, <laughs> Paul in his wisdom says, are you? Are you really? Because if you continue in Philippians 2, where he's saying so much, not only in my presence, but so much more in my absence. Remember, we're mirroring that to Nehemiah, where Paul says that. He says, he's talking about, stay with it, with fear and trembling. He says, for it is, verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How? How is God working in you? He says, verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. I'm just going to stop there for a second. By the way, kudos to Charles. He picked Philippians to go through. We're going through it in a devotion. I would not have stumbled across this if we hadn't been going through that. This just came out of that devotion. But it's so relevant. This whole passage is so relevant to that. That the actions that we need to move away from indicate the attitudes. But there's something even deeper that indicate those attitudes because so many of us don't have the heart of the younger prodigal. We're not off doing all those things. We know better. But here's what we do instead. In our piousness, in our steadfast love for God, in our rule following, boy, do we grumble and complain and fight and petty squabble for our turf. Just like that older prodigal son, right? How come you're accepting him back? How come he gets it? I was doing the right things all the time. I can't believe so-and-so isn't doing what the rest of us are doing. 
they need to be corrected for their minor fault. That's what he's saying about grumbling and disputing. He's saying do all things, everything, without grumbling and disputing. No exceptions. It is a total statement. You guys, this is so convicting to me. Because I have shut my mouth so many times grumbling this week. So many times I've just shut it. And yet, when I have been tired, what has happened? The grumbling comes out, just like it used to look. The grumbling just flows out. And he says, no, total, all. Why? You work your salvation out with fear and trembling. Don't grumble and dispute. So if we are grumbling, it is an indication that all of those attitudes are not, we're not actually slaying them. They're just in the guest room. They're all on standby. And we are, we're actually feeding them little breadcrumbs through our grumbling. We're feeding them. We're keeping them alive in the cage to use them for our own power later. That's what's happening when we grumble and, and, and dispute and make these petty squabbles. He says, instead, be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Because you are supposed to be lights in the world. And of course, when Paul's writing this, he's in prison, writing Philippians, and he's saying stuff like to live in Christ, to die is gain. He's just all about suffering at this point because he's at the very heart of the gospel. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah doesn't want to come back and do all of this. Nehemiah is going through his own suffering to come back and make right what he knows need to be made right, even though he would probably much rather at this point, be on to either the next thing in Jerusalem, or maybe, to be honest, back with Xerxes for a little bit, just for a little break. <clears throat> but here's, here's a warning statement. So this is back to the drifting, back to the grumbling, back to the complaining. Here's another warning statement. This is from Charles Naylor, who's 1941, wrote this sermon. He says, those who are drifting, he says, they have become used to being unspiritual, they are not just altogether satisfied with it, but they would rather be as they are than to make an effort to be more spiritual. But actually, they're perfectly content with the, the rollout bed. They're perfectly content with it. They've, they've made a balance of their life with you. He says, so they drift along. Well, of course, they would like to be more spiritual than their brothers, but they have become used to being as they now are, and they're doing pretty well. Why bother about things? To be sure, they have lost their former zeal, but they have gotten so used to being without it. They used to feel very keenly when they omitted spiritual duties, but now they have become used to admitting them. It doesn't bother them very much. We can get into a place where it is just natural for us to love righteousness and to hate iniquity, to, de to desire to do all we can for God and not hold back from effort. That's an amazing statement. Did you hear that? He says we can get into a place. Clearly this guy's speaking from experience. We can get into a place where it is just natural for us to love righteousness and to hate iniquity, to desire to do all we can for God and not hold back from effort, not hold back from effort. We can get used to service and sacrifice. It's wonderful to hear. And this we must do if we are to prosper in our souls as God designs that we should prosper. But woe to us if we sacrifice those qualities of righteousness in the soul and get used to sin. Man, that's powerful. Because what he's saying is he's saying, compared to sin, sacrifice would seem so much harder. So maybe what I'm complaining about 
maybe what you're complaining about is actually the good thing. You're complaining that you have to sacrifice. That's what the older prodigal son was complaining about, that he had to sacrifice for the younger one. And we think that that is somehow pious and within the realms of righteousness. And he's saying it is absolutely couldn't be farther. Because what you're saying is the very heart of the gospel, which is to suffer, is something that you despise. That's what he's saying. And so then the question becomes, where on earth do we search for the cure? At this point, perhaps everybody listening is guilty of this. I know I am. Where do you search for the cure? Because these people, as far as they'd gotten, as much as Nehemiah even had thought they had gotten all the way, they had gotten kind of halfway. And when Barclay talks about this word halfway, there's a Greek word for this. I'm not going to even try to pronounce it. And he's talking about it. He says, this word means... He says, it's about the idea of bringing something to completion, to work out your salvation. Sorry, the word work out, katergasathai is the Greek, right? He says, it's the idea of bringing, bringing something to completion. Work out your own salvation of fear or trembling. It's the idea of bringing something completely to the finish line. He's saying, don't stop halfway. Go on until the work of salvation is fully achieved in you. There are so many times where we know that that's the truth, but it's kind of like this. I don't know if you guys know um, or listen to John Mark Comer, but he's the pastor at Bridgetown, which is a very big church in town. Um, he had an interview in Outreach Magazine, and he said this. I thought this was really helpful. He, he wrote this. He basically said, the problem with church right now is that a lot of it's formed around a 40-minute dialogue and nothing more. No discipleship, no formation, no iron sharpening iron. This 40-minute information dump where you hear all of the material. And he says, it's kind of like sugar or coffee, right? I know that coffee keeps me up late at night, he says. Or I know that sugar is bad for me. But it doesn't really matter because I still love coffee and I still love sugar. So even though I know all of the things they will do to me at this point in my life, I still go and do them. The problem isn't that I don't know. And the same for us. The problem isn't that we don't know. The problem is that we love it. That we love the things that kill us. And so we have to realize that and bring around, first of all, community. Community in those moments of weakness that says, I know this about myself and I cannot have it. So can you help me? I'm going, I'm committing to this, but I need you around me. And the people of Israel were kind of in this stage, right? Where Nehemiah knew that's what they needed. He created strong leadership. Delegates, people were in kind of these clusters, if you remember, when they were worshiping. And he brought up people all around to teach them and sort of just did a classic discipleship. He just brought, brought up leaders and appointed them all throughout to bring in community. And that's super important. He knew that was important. He, didn't know you, he knew you couldn't just hear the word of God and move out through your week and come back and hear the word of God and move it. You need things like we have in our cohorts. You need things like we've developed in our own relationships with each other and our friendships, where we're not just friends as you would be friends with anyone outside the church. We're a different kind of friend. We're here to check in on you. We're here to see how you're doing. We're here for you to do that with us. We're here to invade each other's lives. And so let's be honest. Nehemiah has permission to do what he's doing here. First of all, he has permission. They've all covenanted. They made, it. They made an oath before God. 
And Nehemiah is saying, you have the information, but you love it too much. You love sin too much. And I need to come in here and we need to keep working and it's going to get real. Because I don't know about you, but the line that sticks out in this, when I read through this book for the first time, is he's pulling out a guy's hair in anger. Like Nehemiah is serious about this. He's seriously frustrated and he's serious about correction. Now, am I advocating we go do that? Which, of course not. But it helps you see the tone of what Nehemiah, the, the gravity, the reality of what it's doing. That Spurgeon level of slaying it or it will slay you. That's what he's talking about here. It's also worth mentioning that in this time period, Nehemiah not just didn't just have the right to do it as like a pastor. That's not even what we're talking about here. He's not, he's not just a pastor. Nehemiah is the ruler. He's been appointed by the power of Persia. And he's using that appointed political power to say this is like the rule of law. We're in a theocracy. God is literally our king. And he's saying, so we're going to make this right because we don't belong in this country if we don't do it this way. So he seeks to correct their love. And I think for some of us, we take the information. We even see that the guest room is there. We see that we have the love. We see that it's misappropriated. And honestly, we're freaked out about letting anybody into that. We're just freaked out about it for a whole myriad of reasons. But the thing we need most at that point is community. We need community to bring us in there. But even that, even if I stopped there, and I, if I ended the sermon here, you should kick me out of the church. Because there's literally nothing about Jesus in that. There's literally nothing. That is simply self-help coaching. You would find this in a good self-help book. You would find this in a good coach leadership book. Reminders, pep talks, cautionary tales, um, accountability buddies. How, I mean, how many people have been through things like that where you, have, you get paired off with somebody and they're just there to keep you accountable? That's just a normal social tactic. And what's happened is a lot of us have gotten through our life and we've actually built up all of these different structures. We've even done that, but we've been soulless and cold caught in a web of guilt, moralism, and rule falling. Our once friends turn into our enemies because they just come in, they just become figures of law enforcement over us. They become traps. They become people we don't even want to be around because they just nag us and ridicule us. They just show us the side of ourselves that we would rather forget. And that is because all of those things are set up but none of us are actually Christians when we're doing it. None of us are actually Christ followers in the way that we are doing this. And so more than the slain, I love the slain, it's important. But if you just took that sign, sin will slay you if you don't slay it. What is that but a strong man moralism? What is that except saying that you've got to be bigger and greater and badder than, than your enemy? More than slain, this kind of relapse requires an ally and a healer that is greater than any man. And thank God we have that. Because our jobs as Christians, the thing that we do, is the literal thing Jesus did. He prays it in the Lord's Prayer. 
He says, on earth as it is in heaven. We are heaven bringers to earth. Heard this this week and it just hit me. And I can't remember, I think it was N.T. Wright who talked about this. He said, he said, our job as Christians is to bring heaven to bear on earth. We have a vision. We have a readout. We have the word of heaven. We see what it looks like. We have the blueprints. We have it lived out in lots of people with lots of different personalities. Now go and bring heaven into earth in everything you do. I was listening to a, a podcast today, a political podcast that I listened to, and a, a, a black author named Ta-Nehisi Coates um, was just great. He was really, really um, just nailed it in talking through everything we're going through. But what's so wild is him and, and the, the host of the show, his name's Ezra Klein, as they were talking through this, they had a, it's like a two-hour conversation, and they, they basically talked through the gospel as two people who don't believe the gospel, because they kept quoting these Martin Luther King Jr. sermons. They kept quoting King's sermons, and they were just in love with them. And what was drenched in his sermons was this idea of nonviolence. It was this idea of suffering as a way of bringing true community. And they got to the end of this, and they're sort of sorting through, like, what the perfect state, the government, what it should be. And the plan that they sort of came through as talking through this was one in which um, we are encouraging ourselves to suffer for each other so that good may come to bear. Some of us don't get what we need so that others may have it. Some of us, some of us have to not have so that others may, may get that it may just be that the nature of nonviolence itself as a form of protest even is a deliberate suffering. They kept quoting King when he would say, this is not going to be easy. Nonviolence is not permissiveness. Nonviolence is standing strong with a brave courage like Paul does as he's suffering in prison and saying, I will continue to suffer and it is so painful. I wish so deeply in the core of my being that I didn't have to do this, but I know that this is the only way to bring healing to this earth, is to suffer for the behalf of others. That that is the only way that heaven will descend onto earth. In, in broader culture, they're seeing the truth in this, and they're just not willing to name Jesus as the bringer of it. But they see that it is the true good thing to do, that if only if we could be people. Because Ezra Klein at one point, he says, well, that's a really nice idea from MLK, but let's come up with another solution because there's no way people in nonviolent protests are actually going to agree to suffer. We have to come up with a more, like, a more um, palpable, a more easy to digest way of protesting that's going to work because that's not going to work. And on one level, he's right. The world will never do that unless they can see that Jesus did it to die for them, even though they don't deserve it. And that gets us to, to the theme that's running through this. What is the theme of this book? Remember me, O oh God. It ties all the way back to Nehemiah 1 in the prayer when he hears in the courts of Xerxes, when he hears this. And he says, he has this long prayer. He never actually says the words, remember me. But he has this prayer that says, God, like, have mercy on us. I repent for my sins. I repent for everybody else's sins. And I'm going to do the hard thing that will require suffering, that will require lowliness of me, that will require to descend from the ramparts of my city, from my great places, from the right hand of the throne. I will descend from there to a nobody, no place, 
town in the middle of nowhere that's broken down and beat up with people that don't get it, and I will suffer for them for 12 years so that we may again stand on the ramparts, as we heard last week, praising and calling your name. And then when I leave, and it happens even again, I will come through and systematically suffer and work through the correction of the things that happened in my absence so that they would be right before you and I will cry out after each one. What does he do? He corrects the first sin and he says, remember me, O God. He corrects the second sin and he says, remember this also in my favor, O God. And spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then at the end, remember me, oh my God, for good. God, I get that I'm not perfect. But in my suffering, in the way that I'm choosing to live, in the way that I am slaying sin, not by being bigger and badder and more powerful, but by being more lowly, more humble, perhaps more wrong more regularly, by being listening more than I'm talking, by obliging myself to others' wishes instead of always seeing my vision come to pass. However it is that I need to be lonely and suffering, by doing the uncomfortable things, things that make me sometimes look like an idiot, by doing the things that I would never in a million years do and that my parents would think were foolish because I was never raised to be that kind of guy. Why would you ever do that? You're giving our family a bad name and you're out there doing those things. Why? Because it's in the word of the Lord and you know it's true. And here's what Augustine says about that. St. Augustine, church father, he says, Our hearts are restless. They're restless until we rest in Jesus. It's only in that point where Charles Naylor says, We can actually know. We can actually love righteousness. We can love suffering on the level that Paul loves suffering. It's possible. But I think it's very common for us to step into a grumbling, complaining space of moralism, ritual keeping, a veneer that no one will even question, but that we can sniff out with each other in community. And it will show us that we're not actually in, in love with Jesus. We're not actually in love with suffering in that way of life that he calls us to, with that kind of sacrifice and love, that maybe we don't even quite know what love is. And we can have solace in this. As Augustine says, he says, we could not even begin to seek him until he had already found us. That we have a God who has, as we have fallen off for the umpteenth time, I mean, come on, Nehemiah must just be like, guys. And what does he do? He behaves just like Jesus on one level. Now, we can talk about the pulling hair out later another time. But on this level, he comes back for them. He come back, he has the 99 sheep, and he comes back for the one. That's what Jesus does. Nehemiah says, it doesn't matter how many great things are there for me in Persia, how many things I could, I could just ignore this. But he says, I know that this is paramount, that I'm nobody, that my character is nothing. If I don't make this right, I'm charged with this. We can get discouraged in working our own salvation out. And I think Nehemiah probably is discouraged and frustrated here. He gets angry. Because on one level, there's a part of him, sinful person that he is, that is trying to work that salvation out. He's a capable administrator. 
He's a powerful leader, and he's working that out. But in the end of it, what does he have to do? He has to say, I'm not in control of this, but I am in control of my own character. I will bring truth to bear in the way that I can bring it to bear. I will bring goodness to bear. I will bring order. I will bring, I will bring I leadership. I will not be permissive. I will not be slothful and lazy. I will not escape from it. I will tackle it head on, even if it means I have some righteous anger, which I almost hesitate to say. It looks so different than most of the anger we have. Nehemiah is self-controlled in here. He's not going off the radar, off his rocker. He's bringing people back under the commitment that they have. And thankfully, we don't have those legal principles anymore. That when Christ came, he brought in a new era and he lifted that burden of the law from us. No hair being pulled out. There's no, there's, that law is taken away and it's been replaced by what? Grace. We have grace. I just want to say a few more things. One is I'm convicted in this that to be people that lead like that, to be people that live like that in our communities, you are each leaders in your community, in your neighborhood. You're a leader because you bring Christ to bear. You bring heaven to bear on them. I heard this phrase and I love it. Never trust a leader without a limp. That we all have problems. doesn't mean we need to air out all of our dirty laundry all the time or be victims. But it does mean that we should be known by the people who know us, not as perfect people. But the people who seek to know us, the people that are in relationship with us, we lead with a limp. We say, I know what that's like. I understand that. I've reco- I'm recovering from that. Jesus is bringing me out of that. But I've still got the limp. I still know what the pain feels like when I walk. And I can still understand it. And I have a God who has come to be with me, to be my friend in spite of that. And I just think about the songs we sing in this church. God with us. You know, classics, like what a friend we have in Jesus. Phrases like one who our hearts adore, the king of my heart, that we are in communion with our Lord and Savior, that we could only be at through his death and resurrection. That the end process, the cure to all of this, the thing that we need to go to when we get past the moralism, the works, even the community, all of that without Jesus, the place that all of this is leading to is friendship, relationship, with God, communion. If the basic fundamental battles in your life are not about getting closer to Jesus, and if the values that you hold high are not about getting closer to Jesus, then they are sin. That if the things you're living and the things that you're getting embittered about are anything other than that Jesus would be more known, that Jesus would be more fully part of your life, then those things have to go. We have to kill them. So my application today for us, my just clearest final statement is this, to just address and ask yourself, in my day, in my seeking, in the short term and in the long term, to be a person who is known by and desires to know Jesus more day by day, through his word, through community, and to be somebody who lives like he lived, Not a powerful person, but a person who suffers in a way that the whole world, even the secular one, will see, and they will just be blown away by it. Because only Jesus will do that through you. That is the Spirit working through you. Let's pray.
God, um, I pray um, so many different ways that this comes to our hearts. And I just pray that tonight um, we would see the reality of you, your goodness to the whole world, and that we are light. And that without that, without you as our center, we are truly, we're wasting our time. The closer and closer we get to the end of this, we'll see that, that it wasn't worth it, all of those things. And God, I just pray that you convict us tonight and that you help us celebrate that you are indeed with us, even if we have failed over and over and over again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.